1: Welcome, everyone, to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I am joined by a special guest, a fellow podcaster named Kyle, who is the host of the Just Cincinnati podcast. Kyle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jerry. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Well, folks, if you haven't already heard, Kyle invited me on his podcast to talk about William Henry Harrison and And his complex legacy. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, please do. I will be sharing that as well as information on Kyle's podcast around the release of this episode. So please feel free to check that out. But Kyle, if you could take a moment to share with the audience what your podcast is about and kind of what got you into podcasting.
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, the podcast is called Just Cincinnati and I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. And really a couple of years ago, when there was so much of a, a racial reckoning, a uh, you know, the pandemic was just really ramping up, me and a, a couple of my friends really had this feeling of, you know, we want to make a difference, but how how am I going to make a difference? What, what, you know, th- these problems seem so huge. They seem so difficult to wrap your arms around. And so it leaves a lot of us feeling like, you know, there's I, I feel powerless. I feel... Like, I uh, can't make a difference, and, and really, you start to feel cynical and, frankly, depressed. And so, uh, the the friend of mine, a friend of mine, and and myself, we decided, hey, why don't we at least just see what we can do in our local community and start talking about things, even though we can't change them, um, maybe we can at least start talking with them with different people who are making a difference. And so that's where we came up with the idea of Just Cincinnati playing off the word of just, meaning uh, justice and, and looking at justice issues. And so uh, we really have several goals with this is to really highlight the injustices in our own community, and there are plenty of them. We probably will not w- run out of them. And then highlight some of the voices of people who are working for justice, or uh, in some cases, people who are affected by those injustices. And then just really talking about some tangible ways that the average person, you know, Kyle in a uh, in, in a city like Cincinnati can actually get involved with some of these services and, and nonprofits and, and different movements to bring about justice in our city. So it's been great. It's, it's given us a, a great opportunity to talk to people who I never would have had a chance to talk to or an excuse to talk to. And, uh, you know, hopefully we're, we're bringing up some topics that are very pertinent to local people. So it's been a lot of fun.
1: Absolutely. And that's one thing that we do on presidencies, you know, in more of the historical context, but really trying to examine that history isn't necessarily black and white. It isn't necessarily all good or all bad. There's all this gray. And what do we do with that? What do we make of that? And how does that help to impact, you know, where we're at now and what inspiration are warnings does it give us for moving forward?
2: Yeah. And that's why I appreciate having you on the podcast so much is because so many of the things we talk about in Cincinnati are, are present day, but we don't know the underpinnings of what, what led to some of these structural injustices, the structural racism or structural problems that we have. And that's why I really appreciate the work you're doing. And And just to let others know, how I found you, I was researching and, and we talk about this a little bit in, in my podcast, but I was listening to your podcast and really fascinated at your in-depth knowledge about President William Henry Harrison because there's not much out there. And so I learned so much from that and
1: and appreciate all you do for, you know, learning that history. Thank you. And that's really what it's all about, you know, whether we're talking about the past or the present. It's all about the people. It's all about trying to understand people navigating in systems that are often inequitable. And what do we do with that? How do, we, how do we process that? And how do we move forward with that? And so with that, I think that's a perfect segue to talking about our cabinet member because we will definitely have some of that gray to talk about here. So as usual, I have not shared with Kyle who the cabinet member is that we're going to be talking about. So he is just learning now that we are going to be talking today about James McHenry. Okay. So Kyle, have you heard of James McHenry before? I know the name, but I can't say anything about him. And I think, especially as we get towards the end, because I imagine that there are some folks in our audience who are kind of like that, oh, that that name McHenry sounds familiar. We'll, we'll probably know why towards the end. But to get us started, James McHenry was born on November 16, 1753, in Ballymena, in County Antrim, in Ireland, which is now modern day Northern Ireland. Now, the closest number I could find for the population of the town around the time McHenry was born, there was a, a statistic from 1704 that said that there were around 800 people in Balamina. So it's definitely a small village. Now McHenry's family were Scots-Irish, which means that they were Presbyterians originally from Scotland who settled in what is now Northern Ireland. And we've talked about the Scots-Irish before, I believe in the special series, as well as in the regular series, you know, we do have a a sizable population. And I know in North Carolina, we have a sizable Scots-Irish population. So apparently in his early life, McHenry was a dedicated student of classical studies at a school in Dublin, so much so that his family became concerned as he supposedly fell ill from quote-unquote excessive studying. Now, that's not something that most parents <laughs> have to deal with. Is that's it? interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he supposedly fell ill and his family arranged for him to be sent to Philadelphia in 1771. Upon his arrival, he initially stayed with a friend of the family, Captain William Allison, before he enrolled at Newark Academy in Delaware to complete his preparatory education. Now, his family immigrated to the British North American colonies the next year, so some scholars believe that McHenry may have been a kind of advanced scout for the family to see how things were in the colonies before they came over. When they arrived, McHenry's father and brother would start an importing business And so, you know, the family's starting to get established. McHenry finishes up his studies at Newark Academy, and then he becomes an apprentice to Dr. Benjamin Rush in Philadelphia to study medicine. And so Dr. Rush is one of those figures that you hear about with the Revolutionary War. We also talked about him uh, when we talked about the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. He's definitely one of those big names. And so early on, McHenry's getting connected with some prominent figures in the colonies. Now, his medical skills would soon be put to the test as the colonies went to war. McHenry was appointed as the surgeon for the 5th Pennsylvania Battalion on August 10th, 1776, and with this appointment, he was stationed at Fort Washington in New York, which is in modern-day Washington Heights in Manhattan. So, this fort had just been constructed earlier in the year to work in conjunction with Fort Lee on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River as a defensive line to prevent British warships from going further up the river. Now, this may sound familiar to folks who are knowledgeable about the Revolutionary War. So, this was kind of the Battle of New York City Mm -hmm. where the British started on Long Island Washington's forces retreated to Manhattan, then went up the island, and ultimately had to retreat to White Plains, New York. And when Washington and his forces retreated, he left Colonel Robert McGaw in command at Fort Washington with a force of 1,200 men, including McHenry. On November 16th, British forces launched an assault on the fort. Though Washington began making plans to evacuate the fort that night, The British had the fort surrounded by the afternoon, and McGall was forced to surrender. Now, McHenry was one of the folks taken prisoner by the British that day. And unfortunately, nearly three-fourths of the prisoners died while in British custody due to poor treatment. McHenry was one of the lucky ones. He was paroled on January 1777 and was ultimately released from that parole in March 1778. So he managed to come out of that. But he wanted to tell folks about what was happening. And so it's believed that this may have been the way that he came to the attention of General Washington. McHenry's biographer, Karen E. Robbins speculates that the report that McHenry wrote about the prisoner of war conditions behind British lines may have brought him to Washington's attention as well as that connection through Benjamin Rush. Hmm. And so Around the time that he's released from his parole and part of the parole was, you know, he was not supposed to go back into battle against the British. He wasn't supposed to oppose the British again. Being released from that, on May 15th, 1778, he became an unpaid assistant secretary to General Washington. Hmm. So again, like early on, this is a quick rise in you know prominence this from this little Village in Ireland to now being on the staff of General George Washington.
2: And was he a doctor this time or was he still in training when, when all of this was happening?
1: So he was actually, you know, at that point, and there wasn't really the formal training or the formal credentialing as is done nowadays, but he did previously serve as a surgeon. So he was active in the medical field. It doesn't seem like he really continued on with that after this, you know, after he joined Washington staff, this was kind of a transition for him into a military role, but really more of an administrative role. Mm. And he was actually an unpaid assistant secretary. So he wasn't necessarily, you know, a commissioned officer, but he was serving in that administrative role. Okay. Okay. And so it was during this tenure that McHenry became acquainted with a fellow member of Washington staff who would play a key role in McHenry's later life, a young man you may have heard of named Alexander Hamilton. Mm. The two would become fast friends and would find themselves brought back together time and time again in the next couple of decades, as we shall soon see. McHenry was present for the Battle of Monmouth in late June 1778, and this turned out to be the last battle of the Philadelphia campaign. And so we start to get to this point, you know, up until then, Washington's command had been pretty active in the battlefield. But after Monmouth, the real action of the war transitioned further south. And so McHenry's time under Washington's command was mostly spent dealing with administrative matters and the bureaucracy of Washington's command. McHenry during this time apparently suffered from bouts of illness Which made dealing with the conditions of camp life even worse. I mean, you know, it was already not the most pristine conditions, and then on top of that, you're not feeling well. So,
2: I wonder if there is any relationship between the illness of that time and the "quote unquote" excessive studying illness. Um, You know, you know, back then they didn't have the diagnostic skills and tests to really determine what that excessive studying illness was. So I I just, I don't know if you have any, maybe you have some insights into that, but I, I wonder if there's some deeper connection there.
1: Absolutely. And I didn't really see any information about what folks thought that may have been, but I wonder in a couple of ways, you know, was it something about stress and a negative impact on his physical health? Because we will see from time to time as we're going along, it seems like it was a constant throughout his life. He would just have mm-hmm. these points where he would start to fall ill, he'd stay ill for a bit, and then come out of it. But then also you have to wonder, you know, was it the conditions? You know, we right. don't necessarily know what the conditions were right. at the school he was at, you know, maybe that contributed to it. Camp life, notorious for diseases being passed around. So It could have been that. It could have been a pre existing condition that just, you know, like you said, they didn't really have a way to diagnose or understand at that time. So there's not really any way of telling, but this will be a constant throughout McHenry's life. Interesting. Despite his occasional ill health, McHenry wanted to see some of the action. So he was still a young man, and like so many young men through history, he wanted to get some glory in battle. And so with Washington's permission, the following year, in August 1780, McHenry was transferred to the staff of the Marquis de Lafayette. And while McHenry still had no rank and was still a volunteer, this would at least get him closer to the battlefield. So he was just kind of hoping, you know, maybe with that proximity, maybe he would get a commission, maybe he would be able to get to battle. However, as things do in life, New opportunities popped up, and this would actually prove to be his last post in the Continental Army. And he was not present for the final battle of the war, the Battle of Yorktown, as he had been elected by the Maryland state legislature to serve in the state Senate on September 17, 1781. And so McHenry had to leave his post under Lafayette in order to take up the seat in the state Senate. Yeah, you know, again, it's just the trajectory of his career. You know, he goes from being at this small village in Ireland, to becoming a surgeon, to serving on the staff of some of the leaders of the Continental Army, and now he's in the State Senate.
2: Wow, that's incredible. And he's what, uh, 30 maybe now, something like that, in his early 30s? He was born in 1753? 1753. Yeah. Okay, and this was in the 1780s?
1: 1781. So 70, wow. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So, I mean, this has been a very quick rise for him, and that's one thing that we do but don't understand in the modern context. I mean, these connections were so important because you get connected with someone prominent, it really opens up doors, as we're seeing with McHenry. So McHenry would serve in the Maryland State Senate for the next five years, and he was also appointed as a Justice of the Peace in Maryland in 1782, but as noted by Robbins, quote, Although he did assist in a few cases, the workload was light. But this is one of those things that, and we've seen with other episodes of the special series, you know, folks just accumulating offices, and it gets them to a level of greater prominence, as well as helps them to really start to get the money that they need to rise up in the social ranks as well. Unfortunately, he, also, he suffered from another bout of illness around this time, but would recover But again, you know, here we go again with these bouts of illness. In 1783, he was chosen to represent Maryland in the Confederation Congress and would serve in that body until 1786. Before we get the impression that he was just all about work, he did apparently carry on with some flirtatious correspondence with a few young ladies in the 1770s and early 1780s. He wasn't all about work. (laughs) But after some time as a bachelor, McHenry finally got to the point where he worked towards settling down. One has to wonder if his father's passing away in 1782 helped turn his mind towards starting a family, because you know, that was around the same time that he became reacquainted with a young lady that he had met upon his arrival in Philadelphia, Margaret Peggy Caldwell. When he had arrived in Philadelphia in 1771, her parents were friends with Captain Allison, who James had stayed with upon his arrival. At the time, it wasn't good conditions for them to be able to get together because Peggy was nine at the time. So, <laughs> yeah, so waited a few more years. And so good, in, good. Se- in 1782, they became reacquainted. And the two would ultimately wed on January 8th, 1784, in a small private sermon. James was 30 and Peggy was 22 at the time. Starting in 1784, they had five children total, but sadly, their oldest daughter, Grace, died only a few years after her birth. And unfortunately, that's something that we see as kind of a constant at this time, child mortality. Right. But this time was also, um, it did bring some more kudos and accolades McHenry's way because he was also honored with election to the American Philosophical Society in January 1786. Now, that year, he left both the federal and state legislatures, but just a year later, he was chosen to serve in another body, the meeting that would come to be known as the Constitutional Convention. Mm. McHenry was actually the only Maryland delegate to arrive in time for the opening day of the convention, but he was soon called away as he got news that his brother, who was at this point his last living blood relative on this side of the Atlantic, had fallen ill. So McHenry left the convention to go and tend to his brother. He stayed away for two months. Though he missed a good portion of the deliberations, he was one of three delegates from Maryland to sign the Constitution when the convention endorsed the document. So he is actually a signer of the Constitution. Okay. So after the convention, McHenry returned to Maryland where he campaigned for ratification. Now, he had tried to win election to the state legislature in order to work in that body towards the state ratification convention, but he lost his bid for the seat in the state house to future Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. McHenry, however, would win election to the ratification convention and was able to help push the cause forward in that body. And so Maryland became the seventh state to ratify the Constitution on April 28, 1788. Later that year, in October, McHenry did finally win election to the Maryland House of Delegates and would serve for two years. During this tenure in the State House, McHenry lobbied for a bill which would call for, quote, the gradual emancipation and non-exportation of slaves, which was based on a manumission law that had been put in place in neighboring Pennsylvania in 1780. Unfortunately, McHenry's version of the bill was not passed, and rather the bill that passed, quote, only urged compassion towards slaves, servants, and apprentices. So the, the bill that he was pushing for, what, what was the difference
2: between the bill that he was pushing for and the, the bill that actually passed?
1: So with his bill, and that's one thing, and we will be coming back to this shortly, but the Pennsylvania law was basically if somebody brought enslaved individuals to the state, within six months, they were automatically set free. And so this was a plan for a gradual emancipation. And also the fact that there was this clause about non-exportation of slaves, Mm -hmm. because there were other places, and Virginia is one, that basically if folks were emancipated, they were also expected to leave the state. Mm. It was trying to limit the free black population of the state by forcing them out to elsewhere the fact that he included this non-exportation you know that they could actually remain in maryland and live as free people it's interesting and it really speaks to you because that's that's one of the things you know maryland constantly over the next few decades leading up to the civil war it's in this weird place you know it is very much a southern state with slavery still legal but they're also influences from places like Pennsylvania that are so close. So really the legislature just wasn't ready yet to go that far.
2: They just said, you know, just treat them nice. Just be exactly. compassionate. And you know, I think that's interesting about, you know, being living in Cincinnati right along the Mason Dixon line, you know, that it, it is they often will call Cincinnati the southernmost northern c- city and so I think along that line, there are so many complexities. And as we talked about on our podcast, you know, there, there are, there are really great elements of the underground railroad that, you know, was, was uh, the gateway to the underground railroad that happened in Cincinnati. But also, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of evil that happened there as well. You know, the slave catchers and the the different, I forget the names of the um, the laws and things that allowed them to return back to the, the South, but again that's why these kind of things are are so important that you know the discussions about enslaved people did not begin you know in 1860s it was started here so that's really
1: interesting exactly and you even see because there was another bill that was passed in 1790 which provided for the manumission of enslaved individuals in a will and so there were some states and especially as time went on and after the The cotton gin was invented and slavery became even more profitable. There were state laws that are put into place to limit even the ability of people who enslaved individuals to be able to grant their freedom. But here you have a bit of an expansion, you know, guaranteeing that folks can free the people that they enslaved in a will, but it was still not as far as McHenry's bill was wanting to go. Mm. And so he left the House of Delegates in 1790 with the death of his brother, John. And so his brother, John, died on May 7th. This was the same brother that had been ill during the Constitutional Convention. And apparently he had suffered from ill health since then. And so he finally got to the point he passed away. And as noted by Robbins, quote, John's death devastated James, despite the fact that they had both been fighting the disease for a number of years. So James had constantly, you know, anytime John was suffering, he would come try and help to nurse him back to health, do everything he could to support him. Despite the fact that this had been going on for years, quote, James was not ready for the loss and perhaps could never have become prepared for it. He had not merely loved his brother, but had liked him. They were really close. They, they really had this bond. And so now this major figure in his life was gone. And was this his younger brother or older brother? I believe that it was his younger brother. Okay. I'm pretty sure. I think James, I need to verify that, but I believe that James was the oldest. With the loss of his brother, you know, besides just the emotional loss, James was also faced with the question of what to do with the mercantile business that John had run. So I mentioned earlier, his father and brother had started this importing business and so James had been a silent partner in that business, but now he had to decide, you know, was he going to get more active? Was he going to sell it off? And so James at this point decided, let me get out of politics. Let me just focus in on the business. But ultimately the law of politics would just be too great for McHenry. And so on November 15, 1791, he was chosen for another term of service in the Maryland State Senate and would serve another five years in that body. So here he's going back into the political realm. And Robbins describes this transition as, quote, During this time, McHenry shed his gloom and truly reentered the political world. Now we're at the point, you know, the new constitutional government is in place, and McHenry's old friend Alexander Hamilton was now the Secretary of the Treasury. And so at this time, they start up a correspondence. And as noted by Robbins, quote, The political relationship between old friends McHenry and Hamilton grew. They wrote constantly about local and national politics, keeping each other informed of news in their own ballywick. As each served the other, they also forwarded their own ends, and they expected to be consulted on matters that affected them. Indeed, they planned and plotted with open regularity on matters so delicate that McHenry grew concerned. And McHenry actually, apparently he wrote back to Hamilton at one point and was basically like, yeah, I think we need to start burning some of this correspondence that we've got going back and forth. And so some of these letters are forever lost to us. So we don't know, you know, what this was about, what the extent was, but you see them really forming this political partnership and expanding their personal friendship. So do we have any idea what they pertain to? Were
2: they business matters or were they, you know, political maneuvering to, to, you know, move on up the food chain?
1: I would say it would probably be a little bit of both because I know we see with other correspondence that Hamilton had that we still have. He really did mix, you know, political news with business. He never... From what we can tell, it was never a matter of like doing something shady in the Treasury Department. He did make sure to keep that kind of confined in its own place. But just like with other folks in the government at the time, there wasn't really as much of an expectation of, I need to stop engaging in all business. There were some folks, and we will be talking about this in just a minute, there were some folks that said, you know, I know this is going to be a conflict of interest, so let me stay out of this area, but they may engage in some other business. And especially with Hamilton being the Secretary of the Treasury, he wanted to know what was going on in business. He needed to know what prospects were looking like in the business world and how that would impact the Treasury Department and the federal government. So I imagine it was a bit of both. And Hamilton did have a way of connecting folks and trying to open up opportunities for friends and colleagues. So I imagine some of that was going on. Well, and that never happens in modern
2: day today. No, I mean, that, that all ended back in in the 1700s. So that's that's a good thing.
1: Aren't we so <laughs> glad that we are? You know, we are so much more moral and ethical nowadays. Right, right. right. <laughs> we have arrived. <laughs> Well, with this, McHenry became a leader in the Federalist faction in Maryland. So he's already been in these pretty prominent positions. And so now he's starting to take more of a charge as these factions are forming. And so he would work to rally support for the Washington administration's positions within the state. But unfortunately for McHenry, a split in the Federalist party in Maryland had already happened prior to his return to politics. So he was Scrambling and trying to pull things together, but there was just little that he could do to bring these factions into kind of a cohesive whole, and this resulted in the party as a whole dwindling its support in the state. It really never recovered from the split, and so the Democratic Republicans, you know, more of the pro-Jefferson side of things, they would come to dominate state politics in Maryland. Now, in his personal life, 1792 saw McHenry purchase a 95 acre tract of land in the Baltimore area, which he named Fayetteville, to honor his last commander in the Continental Army, the Marquis de Lafayette. Personally, he's doing well. Politically, he seems to be in a good place. And the beginning of 1796 would see McHenry's career take a great leap forward when another former commander of his from his time in the Army, George Washington, asked McHenry to join his presidential cabinet.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We just have to start here with the fact that McHenry was not at the top of Washington's list to join his administration. Hmm. For folks who are regular listeners of the podcast, you know, this time in the second term of Washington's presidency, he was really struggling to find folks who would accept cabinet posts. And there were a couple of reasons for this, you know, A, the factionalism was just getting so rampant that folks were like, I just, I don't want to be involved in that. I may want to serve the public, but I don't want to be dragged down into the muck and mire of politics. And then also it was often a financial loss for the folks who agreed to serve. You know, they would have to leave whatever business they were in. They'd have to leave. Most of the times they left their families and they would have to kind of turn over their personal affairs to somebody else to manage. And Often that didn't turn out well, or if they tried to balance back and forth, you know, it's just like with anything. If you try and spend too many plates, ultimately something's going to have to get. There are a couple of reasons that it was just, you know, Washington was going to candidate after candidate and getting turned down. And at this time, he had a pretty prominent vacancy in the State Department. Edmund Randolph had resigned, and we talked about that in his special episode. And it's actually not surprising. So as he was going through names, you know, he started kind of on his own, but then he turned to Hamilton, who was out of the cabinet, but he knew Hamilton had all these connections. So they start brainstorming back and forth possible candidates, and Hamilton's mind turned to James McHenry. He mentioned McHenry first as a possibility for Secretary of State. But then Hamilton also kind of turns. He's like, well, he'd be ethical and he'd be loyal, but he's just not really that well known outside of Maryland. You know, he's prominent there, but really, what is he going to bring to the administration? And so Washington ended up going through other candidates, didn't offer this post to McHenry. But then Secretary of War, Timothy Pickering, had been serving as the interim Secretary of State for a few months. And so finally, Washington just got to the point. He's like, Pickering, you're already doing the job. Do you just want to do it full-time? Let's just go ahead and make it official. And so Pickering finally accepted and this created a vacancy in the War Department. For this post, it wasn't necessarily that he needed somebody quite as prominent, so his mind turned to McHenry. He knew that McHenry knew about the Army. He had had his experience in the Continental Army. He knew that he was loyal. He knew that he was rather ethical. Also with this, as described by Robbins, quote, He was a Southerner with military experience, a seasoned politician at the state and local levels, a Federalist partisan leader, and a successful businessman. He was also committed, loyal, and honorable. So it's clear to see why Washington would look for somebody like this for the Post. So he made the offer, and McHenry said, you know, I need to take a little time to think about it. Because he actually, and and this is where we get to what we think of as modern ethics and conflicts of interest, McHenry realized, you know, his business was all about supply and being that merchant in the mercantile business, and the War Department would need to do purchases of material, of supplies for the Army, and so that would create a conflict of interest for him. He knew he would have to sell his mercantile business as well as his interest in another mercantile company. So he would have to just completely divest himself from that business. And of course, there was a little bit of a personal element to it. You know, the mercantile business had been his father's and his brother's prior to him taking charge. And so there was that emotional connection to it. But finally, his sense of duty prevailed. And though he also took a financial loss from selling his interest in both of these businesses, he did ultimately take up the post. So I got a
2: question that is a little bit maybe off the beaten path, but, you know, I'm I'm hearing that this is the secretary of war position Mm -hmm. and we don't have a secretary of war position today. I believe it's the secretary of defense. What point did that change in our history? Uh, you know, do you know
1: when that switched from that mindset? Absolutely, and so it was actually during World War II. So, at this point, and we'll talk a, a little bit more as we get into McHenry's work in the War Department. At this point, there was just the War Department, but they were starting to build a Navy. But there wasn't a separate Navy Department until, I believe it was 1798, and I've got that a little later on. We'll be talking about that. But the War Department and the Navy Department were separate for the longest and into World War II. And it became clear that it was a problem because they needed to be able to work together, the Army and the Navy. They needed to be able to coordinate We needed the Navy to be able to transport troops to other parts of the world. And so it starts, you know, folks start coming together and thinking, okay, well, maybe we just need to combine them into one department. You know, they can still kind of be separate military entities, but we need kind of one administrative center for that. And so that's when the Department of Defense was created. I believe it was 1946. I could be a year or two off on that, but I believe it was either 45 or 46 when they were consolidated into the defense department.
2: So did that, you know, you know, war is obviously, it sounds like more of a, an offensive type of movement, whereas defense seems more defensive. Obviously, did the world wars have any impact on, you know, rethinking war and rethinking our place in the world and, and kind of getting involved with other other countries and those types of things, or, or did was it just, you know, was there less of that kind of emphasis and more just consolidation?
1: Absolutely. And I think that it, there was already kind of this movement and especially, you know, World War One was supposed to be the war that ended all wars mm-hmm. and there were movements in the twenties and thirties to, you know, trying to find other ways to resolve conflicts and trying to be able to find peaceful ways, not having to go to war and then World War Two happened and again and especially at the end of World War Two, you know, you have the beginning of the atomic age. You had the two bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so it really did prompt folks to think and rethink. And I think we're still in that place of thinking and rethinking what our role in the world should be. And It's really fascinating to be able to kind of study towards the beginning and the Washington administration and the Adams administration, because there really was this sense of what is the proper size of a regular army. And there was this fear of a regular army. There was a fear of, you know, I mean, they would be aghast at the military industrial complex nowadays because, I mean, they thought, you know, a few hundred people Maybe that's too much, but they started to see a need. But then the factions had different ideas on that. You know, the Federalists were more about kind of the military preparedness, versus the Democratic Republicans were more, well, we need the military out in the frontiers to help to protect there, but maybe we just don't need them too close to the Eastern seaboard. And maybe we don't really need an offensive Navy. Maybe we just need the little gunboats for defense. And so you have these discussions, and in some cases, similar to what we're having nowadays, but in a much smaller scale about what is the proper role of the military, of this war department. Well, they
2: they had just been on the other side of the the empire of of the, the boot on their neck of of those big oppressive armies and i'm sure it was it was more fresh in their minds than it is now uh, we've we've been in this mode uh where where we are all over the globe uh militarily and that's at least for my generation for our generation it's it's not as
1: not as close to our you know the front of our mind Absolutely. And and that's the thing, and, and you make a great point, Kyle. You know, this was still so close to the Revolutionary War. And here you had battles happening in the major cities, you know, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston. They knew what it was like to be on the front lines, to be at war. And so there was this fear and and justifiable fear of what should happen. And and especially, you know, this idea of democracy, there had been democracies before there were historical democracies that they could point to, but the scale and this idea that became the American government, it was still very fresh and frankly, it was still an experiment. They didn't know that it would succeed. They didn't know that this would actually work. And they had seen also in history and personally how military might could be used to take that away. Right, And that brings us back to McHenry. You know, this is kind of the person that you would want in the War Department in this position that's the civilian head of The military, you want somebody who's going to be ethical. You want somebody who you can trust to not do something untoward. So, you know, you really get a sense of why McHenry was, he came up to be that choice for Washington. But we do have one other thing to talk about before we kind of dive into his career in the cabinet, because there was another matter that they needed settled in terms of that transition to life in Philadelphia, because that's where the capital was at the time. So he and Peggy had to consider what to do about the five individuals that they enslaved to work in their household. So we had mentioned earlier about James's work in the state legislature trying to push for the gradual emancipation of enslaved individuals and all this, and so Robbins, uh, she actually says in her biography of McHenry, quote, "It is somewhat ironic that James even owned slaves since he had placed himself on record as to the biological equality of whites and blacks. Hmm. And Robbins had to conclude, and I think this is the only conclusion we can reach, is that the convenience for him and his family to have enslaved individuals working in the household, ended up trumping his ethics. Mm. And so they did enslave five people in their household, four women and one man. Their names were Rachel, Henny, Pris, Patience, and Mentor. We had talked earlier about Pennsylvania's manumission law, which provided freedom to anyone enslaved in the state after six months' residence. And this was something that Washington and Jefferson had had to deal with in their residence there as well Now, with Washington and Jefferson, you know, they were wealthier. They were able to transport folks back to the plantation within that six-month time frame, or they were able to work out kind of deals with the people that they enslaved. But with James and Peggy, they aren't quite as wealthy as other cabinet members and the president. And so they have to really think through, okay, what do we do? Do we free these individuals? Do we sell them? And James seems to have left the matter more to Peggy. He did step in at points with this, but he really had to get focused on the War Department, so he left it more to Peggy. And so she offered them a contract of indentured servitude if they would agree to come with them to Philadelphia. Now, this meant that they would be legally required to serve them at Henry's for seven years before they could obtain their freedom. One of the enslaved women and the enslaved man agreed immediately to the indenture, but the other three worked to negotiate either for them to be immediately free so they could remain in Baltimore or at least have a shorter period of servitude when they got to Philadelphia so that they could get to being free people earlier. We know that one of the enslaved women was eventually convinced under pressure from the McHenry's to agree to the indenture the McHenry's threatened to sell her unless she would agree to the indenture. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it was for the enslaved woman, the devil, you know, versus the devil you don't. And so she agreed to the indenture. Another one who was older was able to gain her freedom because the McHenry's finally were convinced that it would be more trouble to sell her than the money that they would actually get for selling her. And so Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, we'll cut our losses. You're free. The third woman, we don't know, but we do know that she did try to negotiate, but we just don't know what came of it.
2: It's uh, when you think of the human side of that, it's pretty humbling. I mean, it you know we have the the luxury of looking back through history, but just thinking of of having someone in the position to negotiate with with very little leverage, uh, with two options that don't probably sound good to them. Uh you have one that's bad and one that's worse. I just and uh, you know, who knows if if they had children later on or what you know, what relationships they had. I'm sure that was in play too, if they were gonna be leaving their those relationships and, you know, the the, the friendships they had among their their fellow enslaved people. I mean who knows all the pieces, all the human element of that, but it's pretty humbling to
1: hear here you describe that. Absolutely. Well, and, and that's one thing that this is about people. And this is one of the things, you know, as you start to study things like the, the underground railroad and people escaping enslavement, it wasn't an easy choice because you're potentially abandoning your family, you're abandoning your friends, you're abandoning everything that you know on the hope that you can get to a better place or you can establish yourself and hopefully get the people that you love to freedom. And so, you know, I think you make an, an excellent point here. I mean, it, it just, it wasn't, and we don't know the specifics because, of course, you know, we don't really understand this. We don't have the direct stories of the enslaved individuals. This is more from Peggy and James's correspondence back and forth about the situation. But you can imagine you know what do you do and and that was part of the reluctance of, well, you know, I don't really want to go to Philadelphia, I don't know anybody in Philadelphia. my family is here. The people that I know are here. Why would I want to do that? But at the same time, the fear of being sold and not knowing what that situation would be like, and especially at this point because we start to see people who are sold from some of the upper South states to the lower South. And you see more of this, you know, harsh conditions and it just, it was known that that would be even worse than working in a household and being enslaved. And and so it just, there were, it was a bad option or a less bad option. The navigation of The system, it's important to study and to understand. Folks weren't necessarily completely disempowered, but trying to think with the limited power that they had, what could they do? How could they try to make some life for themselves? How could they find a space that was for them? And knowing that all that could be taken away, their family could be taken away, their friends could be taken away, everything that they knew could be taken away at any moment, it's very. I think you use the word appropriately. Humbling.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, it really shines a light on the privilege that we have, and that so many in history didn't. Right. And so, this is something that we're going to have to talk about when we get to the ethical round of our scoring, but. I did want to note that the McHenry's would enslave people in the future as well. So even after these individuals were taken and put into an indenture, we know that Peggy McHenry provided for the gradual emancipation of two younger enslaved individuals in her will on down the line. So they did at some point enslave more people. We don't know necessarily the details of that, but they would be slave owners and they would enslave individuals. throughout their lives. James McHenry assumed office as the third Secretary of War on January 27, 1796. And at this point, there was just over a year left in Washington's second term, but it wasn't known at this point whether Washington would stand for another term of office. And so McHenry threw himself into the work, and there was much work to be done in the War Department because at this point, there were tensions between the U.S. and Britain, as well as the U.S. and France. Despite the recent Jay Treaty, there were still diplomatic tensions that were high with Britain. Because of the Jay Treaty, relations with France had steadily grown worse. And so McHenry had to come into the situation and figure out, well, you know, if we do go to war, what do we have? I've already mentioned that the nation was quite adverse to the idea of a standing army. And so that created a problem, trying to prepare for national defense. Also at this point, the War Department, with its secretary and five clerks, so six people composed the War Department. And these six people were responsible for, quote, overseeing the construction of ships at three different locations for the new Navy, managing an army that included 3,000 officers and enlisted men around the country and in far-flung frontier posts, and trying to manage relations with the Native Americans. So this small department was responsible for all of that. The War Department also accounted for around 38% of the federal budget at that time, which meant that McHenry would have a good deal to do with managing the department's finances. So this was a big job for anybody to step into. A couple of years after he left office, Washington asserted in a letter to Hamilton that, quote, I early discovered after he, i.e., McHenry, entered upon the duties of his office that his talents were unequal to great exertions or deeper resources. Historian Leonard White attributes McHenry's shortcomings as secretary to his quote, inability to delegate details and to keep a firm hand on essentials. McHenry, and, and we'll see this a bit more as we're going along, McHenry early on and throughout his tenure in the War Department really gets criticized, oh, well, you're not doing enough, you're not doing things fast enough, but he's really not working with much. And with all that criticism, we still should note that McHenry would champion the cause of military preparedness, particularly in light of the needs of the growing American frontier. He advocated an increase in the size of the regular army, and this was because, you know, at the time they had this idea of the citizen militia, you know, Citizens could come to their own defense, but the militia had proven time and again ineffective when it came to an actual battle. And so McHenry started advocating, you know, we really need to expand the size of the army if we potentially have war with Britain or France. I mean, they've got large armies, they've got large navies. We really need to be prepared. He also pushed for the establishment of a school to train army officers. And though, it wouldn't necessarily happen during his tenure. Ultimately, we know that West Point would become that training for officers in the future. Now, one of the big decisions to come up in this twilight of the Washington presidency related to the Jay Treaty. Because though the treaty had been ratified by the Senate and signed by Washington, in order to implement the treaty, the House had to pass an appropriations bill to cover some of the treaty stipulations. Democratic Republicans in the House launched a campaign to thwart this and used the opportunity on March 24, 1796 to pass a bill requesting papers related to the treaty from the Washington administration. They felt that these papers would prove that the treaty unfairly benefited Britain at the expense of France. So they wanted the proof that what they were saying was actually happening. President Washington consulted with his cabinet, including McHenry, about the situation. McHenry, after consulting with Attorney General Charles Lee, responded that he felt, quote, the president was under no constitutional obligation to share the papers with the House. Only the agreement of the president and Senate were required to make treaties. So this would be the position that was ultimately taken by Washington, and in so doing, Washington established what we now know of as the concept of executive privilege. Ultimately, the House would pass the appropriations bill. Jay's treaty would go into effect, but this is a precedent, and you have McHenry arguing for this precedent and you know it still impacts to the present day you know we still have discussions about executive privilege and what the limits are of that it seems like i've heard that word quite a bit lately too the executive privilege oh yes it has been coming up in recent political discussions so yeah. we still <laughs> don't quite have it figured out Now, we don't just I'm putting some timelines
2: together here in my mind. And so while he was secretary of war, he was around the time when President William Henry Harrison was
1: doing his military thing. Right. Or it was around that time. Exactly. So at this point, Harrison was actually in Cincinnati. He was serving in the fort there. He would become the governor of the Indiana Territory during the Adams administration. But at this point, he was still in the military and still in Cincinnati. Interesting, And kind of talking about that, because that's actually a great segue. So in terms of affairs with Native nations, McHenry inherited a situation that had grown more stable, at least from the perspective of the United States, in the Northwest Territory following the Treaty of Greenville. However, there was still much uncertainty in terms of the nation's territory to the Southwest, which is thinking of modern day Mississippi and Alabama. So that was still kind of an unsettled area. And as was the policy of the Washington administration, this meant a mix of diplomacy in terms of commissioners sent to the native peoples for treaty negotiations, as well as military preparedness in terms of assessing the forces present and augmenting as needed, as well as coordinating with the local militias. As we know, in the fall of 1796, Washington decided against running for another term of office, and so his successor was elected in the election that year, and that was Vice President John Adams would succeed Washington to the presidency. Now, as this was the first transfer of presidential power in American history, there were no precedents for Adams to follow in assuming office, and so he decided to do what no president has done since and retain the entire cabinet. So in terms of folks that were elected to the office, you know, we've had some instances where folks succeeded to the office when the sitting president passed away unexpectedly, they would retain the cabinet. But in terms of this person was elected and is succeeding somebody else, Adams decided to retain the entire cabinet, including McHenry. He would very quickly come to regret this, especially as he started thinking of this idea of a bipartisan peace commission to go to France to resolve issues with that nation. He came up with this idea. He's like, okay, well, we've got this partisan divide, but now I've got Jefferson as my vice president. Maybe we can start to bridge that divide. Maybe we can send this bipartisan peace commission, get things better domestically, as well as. In terms of foreign relations, but when he informed his cabinet of this idea, they all threatened to resign if he carried forward with the idea, and in particular, they were opposed to Adams's idea of appointing prominent Democratic Republican leader James Madison to the commission. Now, Adams, as we'll see, acted rather independently, and so he had already sent an offer to Madison to be on this commission. And so this put him kind of in a difficult place. Do I lose the cabinet just a few days into my presidency? Do I withdraw this offer that I've made? Thankfully, Madison helped him out. Madison had no intentions of going on this diplomatic mission. And so Adams was able to say, okay, I'm scrapping this idea, save face, keep the cabinet. But it quickly became clear that this cabinet was not necessarily going to work for Adams and McHenry was one of those in the cabinet, his loyalties would not prove to be with President Adams, but rather with his friend Alexander Hamilton. Like some of his other colleagues in the cabinet, McHenry would often turn to Hamilton for advice. It was the case then the president went to the cabinet, asked for written opinions on the matters of the day, and so McHenry as well as some of the other cabinet members would then turn to Hamilton and say okay well Hamilton what do you think about this Hamilton would send them back his ideas and they'd start to incorporate that and in some cases just copy verbatim what Hamilton said and hand it to Adams now McHenry wasn't necessarily a puppet for Hamilton as Robbins notes quote he would alter whatever did not comport with his own views and we should also note that the scope of McHenry's work in the War Department was so large, he didn't have time necessarily to go and research on issues that he wasn't as familiar with. So, having this opinion from somebody who was well versed in foreign affairs, domestic affairs, it was helpful for him to be able to meet those needs as well as be able to focus in on his work. But that is still something that comes up. And it's like Hamilton had a great amount of influence on the cabinet. Without being in the cabinet. McHenry's focus was really on the Western lands, and to that end, he employed trusted agents to gather information that would be of use to the administration. And it was through this network of informants that the administration would gather information about speculative plots by American leaders in the West, including Senator William Blount, Democratic Republican from Tennessee. And these plots would often involve foreign powers who also had an interest in the West and in destabilizing the West. And so there were also problems with the Spanish government. During the Washington administration, they had negotiated what was known as Pinckney's Treaty, which was supposed to settle the boundary lines between U.S. and Spanish territory in the area. But the Spanish were just like, yeah, well, we've got these forts and what was disputed territory. We're not going to be in any big hurry to evacuate them, to be able to hand them over. And so they were just kind of lingering. And, and this was an increasing problem because more settlers were moving into the area. There was more of an opportunity for tensions and possible war with Spain. And so while Secretary of State Pickering applied diplomatic pressure on the Spanish minister to the U.S., McHenry would send orders for more troops to move into the area and he would also send orders to military officers to gently remind Spanish commanders of that treaty that they said that they would abandon the fortified positions. Ultimately this did work and the Spanish would evacuate the previously disputed lands. Now in the second half of 1797 McHenry would fall ill and started to fall behind in his work in the war department. Even though Adams expressed his thanks for McHenry's, quote, indefatigable attention to all these subjects, his cabinet members, particularly Pickering and the Secretary of the Treasury Walcott, they, quote, failed to appreciate the amount of work the office demanded and that the department needed more clerks. They would instead become uncharitable. So even his colleagues are starting to turn against him and start plotting against him. At the beginning of 1798, with Adams' approval, McHenry put forward a request to the House of Representatives for more clerks in the War Department. Then, as now, because this happens often, this request ended up dying a slow death in a committee. They sent it to a committee. It just sat there, no action taken. Here we go.
2: And I'm sure it's, I mean, it partly, I'm sure, was, you know, they were understaffed. He was sick. And maybe not able to dedicate most of his time to that. But also the country's growing and the, it's
1: they're they're so I mean it's understandable why even if he wasn't sick, why he would need more help. Exactly. I mean the country's expanding and the military plays a key role in these frontier settlements and the frontier's expanding, so but Congress doesn't like spending money on certain things that really do make sense sometimes. So yeah. You know, it ended up McHenry was just left and and was constantly criticized. You know, it, it was like, oh, well, he wasn't doing enough. Well, he just didn't have the resources to do enough. We have an increased pressure on him with the revelation of the XYZ affair, which was a scandal where French agents had requested a bribe before Adams's peace commissioners would be recognized and allowed to speak with the French foreign minister. So Adams did get his commission but they weren't able to carry out their mission because they were basically asked for a bribe and they said no. And when this was revealed to the public, the calls for war against France increased and this made McHenry's work more important than ever because even though he wasn't given more clerks at this point, Congress decides, okay, well maybe we do need to increase our military forces. Also, There was this, you know, we started to have the first frigates of the Navy that were actually launched at this time. And so McHenry and Walcott advocate that these new U.S. naval ships should be sent to the Caribbean to protect U.S. merchant ships there from the French. And that's exactly what happened. And this would come to be called the Quasi War. So there was never an actual declaration of war, but there were skirmishes that were fought with these ships. And at this point, McHenry was still responsible for the Navy as well as the army. And now this was an expanded army because in mid 1798, Congress approved the creation of this new military force and they put George Washington in charge as commander in chief. And so, you know, the fact that this was Washington, McHenry saw fit, you know, he's like, I need to go myself to Mount Vernon and hand over the commission and kind of consult with Washington about what this force is going to look like. And so that's exactly what he did in early July. The problem was when it came to who was going to serve under Washington. So there were three subordinate positions that were created. And in terms of seniority, Hamilton was third. So he should have been given kind of the lowest rung position. But Washington decided, no, I want Hamilton. Hamilton is my right-hand person, so he's going to be my second in command. Adams and Hamilton didn't get along, so Adams was like, over my dead body, this is not going to happen. McHenry and the other cabinet members start pushing, a they start telling Washington, keep asking for what you want. Forget about Adams, he'll he'll eventually fold. And then in their consultations with Adams, they were like, okay, you just need to give Washington what he wants. And so ultimately, Adams does back down. Hamilton becomes the second in command, which made him essentially the de facto head of this new army because George Washington was like, you know what, until we actually go to war, Hamilton, you just handle everything. I'm going to stay here at Mount Vernon. Wow. Yeah. And so again, you know, you have these tensions between you have a president who is basically at loggerheads with his own cabinet. Thankfully for McHenry around this time, another of the innovations that came out of the XYZ affair was that Congress saw the need for a department of the Navy. And so at least that responsibility was taken off his shoulders and he had a new cabinet member who was responsible for the Navy, but he would start to have problems with his longtime friend, Alexander Hamilton, because Hamilton, as the de facto leader of the new army, decided that he should just basically tell McHenry what to do. And he wrote to McHenry on July 30th, 1798, that, quote, I observe you plunged in a vast mass of details. It is essential to the success of the minister of a great department that he subdivide the objects of his care, distribute them with competent assistance, and contend himself with a general but vigilant superintendence. And so now here's increased pressure on McHenry. He would find himself caught between Hamilton's demands and Treasury Secretary Walcott, who was saying, we don't have the budget for this. We're going to have to go back to Congress, ask for more appropriations. And Hamilton would come back with, well, just make it happen. I was Treasury Secretary. I could have made it happen. He ends up coming together at the end of the year with Washington, Hamilton, and Charles Cotesworth Pinckney, who was in one of those subordinate roles in the new army. They developed a comprehensive plan for the buildup of the new army. And so this plan was sent on to Congress. They wanted a force of 53,000 regulars, plus dragoons and a volunteer corps. And this was going to be a massive expansion of the army. President Adams, however, an independent streak of his, he had some other ideas. Instead of all this buildup of an army, Adams in early 1799 put forward William Van Murray's name as the new U.S. minister to France, without consulting with Federalist leaders or his cabinet. And immediately they started pushing back. We're we're going to war. What are you doing? You know, why are you trying this diplomatic route again? We tried that. It failed. And so, you know, Adam starts talking with folks. He finally gets them to agree to a new three man peace commission to go and see one more time can we work this out diplomatically? McHenry, along with Pickering and Walcott, expressed their disapproval of this, and they would do anything they could to thwart these efforts to, you know, okay, well, maybe. I know you really need this piece of paper for the commission to move forward. Whoops, I can't find it. I'm just going to hide it over here. They would do anything they could to thwart this plan. Meanwhile, there was a minor domestic revolt in eastern Pennsylvania against taxes levied to provide for this expanded army. And we don't really have time to go into too many of the details, but basically this called for another military force to be put together. So naturally, this responsibility landed on McHenry as well. He would be criticized by his fellow cabinet members as well as the commander of this force for not being organized and not moving fast enough to make arrangements for it. Again, it's just constant here's some more responsibility, here's some more responsibility, and why aren't you getting it done fast enough? And Hamilton decides, you know what? I'm tired of trying to write to you and tell you what to do. He shows up at the War Department in the spring and starts basically taking charge, which Uh you can imagine how McHenry felt about that. <laughs> yeah. And so at this time, McHenry was faced with all of this pressure and all this criticism. The Peace Commission did move forward, even though, you know, the cabinet tried to do everything they could to stop it. But finally in the spring of 1800, after years of dealing with these cabinet members that were opposing him left and right, President Adams finally had enough. And he's like, okay, I need to shake things up a bit. I've been hearing a lot of criticism of McHenry, so maybe I should start with him. They had scheduled a meeting already in early May to discuss an open position where, surprise, surprise, Adams and McHenry couldn't agree on a nominee to put forward. So again, still at loggerheads. And so Adams uses this opportunity to accuse McHenry of being disloyal and working at cross purposes to his policies. And in the midst of this back and forth, Adams asked for McHenry's resignation. And at first McHenry's like, no, I don't, you know, let me think about it, whatever. The next day he finally has enough and he sends his resignation in writing to President Adams. He offers to stay through the beginning of June to help wrap up what he could and ensure a smooth transition. And so on the morning of June 2nd, 1800, McHenry handed over the reins of the War Department to Secretary of the Navy, Benjamin Stoddard, who would be acting as Secretary of War until a permanent replacement could be found. And so with this, McHenry is out of the cabinet. After this ignominious departure from the Adams administration, McHenry returned to Baltimore. As described by Robbins, quote, He had tried throughout his adult life to serve his country with honor, but in the end had been sacrificed and disgraced. McHenry understood the politics, but he was wounded. He would not play a leadership role in party affairs again. And so at first, McHenry tried to keep quiet about what happened, tried not to criticize Adams too much. You know, of course, he had a small circle of folks that he would vent to, but he tried to keep, at least on the public face of it, things were fine. But as the election of 1800 grew nearer, McHenry started sharing more with a wider range of folks and started really talking bad about Adams. Meanwhile, Alexander Hamilton would use information provided by McHenry as well as Pickering and Walcott to draft a lengthy pamphlet which denounced Adams. And so here you have Federalists tearing down the incumbent president. And so naturally, Adams lost his re-election bid, Jefferson became president, Democratic-Republicans took charge of Congress, and they immediately started launching an investigation into the spending of the previous administrations. Now McHenry had to face a formal investigation to defend himself and his actions as War Secretary. He was ultimately cleared of any wrongdoing, so he at least had that to his name. In his retirement, he kept up his correspondence with his cabinet colleague, Timothy Pickering, as well as some other Federalist leaders. And he would talk some about politics, but really, at this point, he had been burned. He didn't really have any desire to be really involved in politics.
2: So when I hear what President Adams was kind of, he kept going the diplomatic route. And, you know, how much of that do you think was wanting to just avoid war and not wanting to amp up things, you know, how much of it do you feel like was maybe some of his other staff wanting to show that they had power, that they weren't afraid, that they were courageous, that they were wanting to make a name for these, this new country? What, what was,
1: what were some of the motives you do think in that, that back and forth? So with President Adams, First and foremost, he had served in a diplomatic role for years. He had gone to Europe as a diplomat. He was really more focused on diplomatic solutions to things. He had some experience in his career where he had helped to mobilize the Navy. He did feel strongly about the buildup of the Navy and having a naval defense for the coast, but he was also very much a realist. He understood It's gonna take time to build things up. We have this small force that's out in the West right now to build up a force that will be able to defend the eastern seaboard is going to take time. We need as much time as we can. And oh, by the way, if we can solve this diplomatically, well, there you go. You know, we won't even have to worry about that. Maybe we'll do a little bit of a build-up, but it won't have to be quite as scrambled and rough shot as it is. Also, there was the Hamilton factor. So Hamilton was very much, he wanted this personal glory. He really felt that he hadn't gotten that. He participated in the Battle of Yorktown, but that was really his only claim to fame like on the battlefield. And so Hamilton wanted to lead this army. He really wanted war for a sense of personal gain. And Adams was very, and and we have evidence in primary documents, he thought that Hamilton was a dangerous man. He didn't want Hamilton to ever get in this position where he had this military glory as well as his political accolades, because that would probably mean Hamilton would become president. Mm. And so there was this mix of what the re- realities of the situation were Adams's preference for diplomacy over military and this Hamilton quandary that really contributed. And Adams kept coming back to this as the way that he saw the best way to move forward. And ultimately Adams, you know, scholars conclude he was probably right. We ended up with the convention of Mortfontaine, Fontaine, which, resolved issues with France. It ended the quasi war and he did get the peace that he wanted, not in time for him to claim the credit for it to win reelection, but it helped to avoid war. It helped to push that even further back so that hopefully we could become a bit more prepared should war come. Hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful to hear that context. Thank you. Absolutely. No worries. And so that's the thing, like, you know, McHenry was really more in this war camp and and it did burn him. He was burned out by politics. He was burned out by all these administrative affairs. And so upon his leaving the cabinet, he really turns more towards spending time with his family, being more active in his church and in the Baltimore community. And so this was a time, you know, he was really able to focus on kind of his personal life. Now, sadly, the McHenry's youngest daughter, Margaretta, contracted tuberculosis at the age of 15. And in November of 1809, she passed away. So Mm -hmm. some more personal loss for him. But he was elected as president of the Bible Society of Baltimore in 1813 and as a member of the American Antiquarian Society in July 1815. In this period, you know, he has his regular bouts of illness. They come and go. But in 1814, McHenry suffers from a bout of paralysis that resulted in his experiencing severe pain and losing the use of his legs for the rest of his life. And so he would hang on for a couple more years, but he finally passed away at the age of 62 on May 3rd, 1816, and was buried in the Westminster Hall and Burying Ground in Baltimore, Maryland. As part of his legacy, McHenry, Maryland, which is on the western edge of the state, was named after him. And apparently there's also a Henry Street in Madison, Wisconsin, that was supposedly named after McHenry. I saw that online. But the best-known landmark named after him, and probably why that name McHenry is familiar, is Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. Hmm. So this fort was built between 1798 and 1800 while he was still war secretary and was the fortification bombarded during the Battle of Baltimore in September 1814. This battle is, of course, memorialized in Francis Scott Key's Star Spangled Banner. Now, the McHenrys were actually able to see the explosions from their estate, and their son, John McHenry, was stationed at the fort. He survived the bombardment and all that, but there was a personal connection as well as this naming connection with the McHenrys in the fort. Wow. Wow. That's where I must have heard it from. And so with that, that is the life and career of James McHenry. And I think we do have quite a few things to talk about as we kind of consider his life and legacy. And so we will get started with our first category, which is the whole picture. This round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member, and we can each award 10 points maximum farthest. So Kyle, what are your thoughts about McHenry's kind of overall career? You know, he was a complex individual. And I,
2: I think, um, you know, it seems like overall, he was trying to be ethical. He was trying to make a difference. He was trying to do right by people. Um, you know, I think if we look at him through back through the lens of history, you know obviously you you get a different perspective but we we have that privilege of doing that we you know he didn't have that so i think you know overall i would probably give him uh maybe a a 7 you know i, I feel like he he didn't get a lot of notoriety for some of the, the the decisions that maybe were challenging in his era uh of trying to you know like the the bill that he was trying to pass with a little bit more um compassion than than the one that just said be compassionate to enslaved people. Um but at the same time, you know, I think he ultimately caved to some of his um, you know, personal needs and and maybe
1: the the ventures that would have benefited him. So I'd say seven. I think I'm gonna match you on that seven, because I think you know, first of all, considering kind of this meteoric rise that he experienced, you know, obviously there was something to McHenry that kept him rising through, you know, being able to establish these connections, being able to be in these offices. And he really did seem to have this commitment to the work. You know, he, he took it seriously. He took what he was doing seriously. Also, the fact that he, you know, when he became War Secretary, he took a financial loss, because he knew that there was a conflict of interest. You know, he obviously, he demonstrates that he takes these roles very seriously and he did have some important accomplishments. You know, he was one of the leaders to push for ratification of the constitution. He started to work in the party structure. He really, he, he did succeed in so many ways Ultimately with his time as war secretary, and we'll talk more about that in the, the next round, he had more challenges that he just couldn't overcome. But he did have some important successes and again, like the fact that so many folks prior to his tenure in, in the war department and really even after described him as, you know, being this ethical and moral person and, and a loyal person, I think that in terms of the whole picture, I think that that seven, I think that that's fair for him. But now we have to turn our attention to his time in the cabinet. So with our go-getter round, this round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And so again, 10 points maximum from each of us. So Kyle, what do we think about his time as war Secretary?
2: This one feels a little muddier than, than the others. You know, it seems like once he got in that position, um, he was, he had a number of forces fighting against him, um, and influencing him. And so I don't feel as clear on this one. Um, but I I have a general sense that maybe history is looking back at that with a, a less than positive, um, view of, of his time there. So I would say it'd probably be on the lower side this time. And I'd, I'd give it a four. So, you know, on the, on the lower side, but still not awful, but I'd be curious what you think
1: about that. I was actually thinking of a four as well, just because, you know, again, like he, he was obviously committed. He obviously really wanted to make this work and he saw some key defects in the overall preparedness of the nation for war. He tried to address those. He tried to advocate for reforms that would come and would help strengthen the military and help strengthen the national defense. But he also wasn't always that effective. And even though I I think we do have to give him credit for, you know, the fact that he was working with five clerks and himself managing all of this, I think the four helps to kind of give him credit for what he was able to achieve. He's also ultimately ineffective in terms of moving things forward and convincing folks that he had a solid grasp of his role and his department. And likewise, I think we also have to consider here he was working at cross purposes with the president. You know, you've got the person who's in charge of him, who, who's his manager, who is saying one thing and he's working against him at times. And, you know, that just doesn't make for an effective role in this administration. So mm-hmm. I think a four is fair. And so now, you know, we have him at. 22 points total thus far but now we have an opportunity to take some points away. In our hot seat round this round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member and this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. So at this point we can remove up to 10 points each.
2: You know I I, I don't have any memory of you saying anything that was, you know, a huge scandal um or or anything that was just a, a a foolish move that was you know just blatantly um the, the wrong direction so i don't have any real strong feelings on that and i do feel like he tried to have um some ethics and morality in his interactions you know i i do i think what stands out for me is some of his interactions with some of his enslaved people that were in his life um people he had enslaved however you know in comparison to many of the people at that time and how they viewed things you know he was somewhat pushing the envelope on how to treat people justly though you know obviously falls way short so i don't see a huge need to subtract too many points so i would say Maybe let's subtract two or, th- let's say two, two points from my side.
1: What about you? And that really gets to kind of a point that we, we come to whenever we talk about cabinet members that enslaved individuals. You know, ultimately, there's no, there's no way to quantify how wrong that was. There's no way to really be able to truly speak to the the horror of that. And so it becomes more about kind of the, the scope. How does this fit into, you know, naturally if somebody enslaved individuals, they are getting some points marked off in this category. And there is kind of extra reason to criticize McHenry, you know, because we see that there is that potential for McHenry that that he understands that this is wrong. Yeah, He's, He worked at times against slavery, but then was an active slave owner and especially, you know, putting these enslaved individuals in a very difficult place for his own personal benefit, for the benefit of his family to ensure that they continue to enjoy or profit from the labor of these folks. Mm -hmm. And so I think we do have to to mark some points off for that. That said, you know, he isn't going to get as many points as Thomas Jefferson, who was a racist, who had very racist views. He did not see black people as equal to white people. You know, mm-hmm. it does seem like McHenry at least understood that. His actions are disgraceful, but he also had things that he was a bit more further along on the ethical line than somebody like Jefferson. So I'm going to go ahead and remove three points just to account for that, as well as the fact that he pretty much opposed the president that he was serving under. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that also has to be Kind of taken into account, but I don't think that, you know, we really don't have many indications of anything else that we can really, that really fits into this round. So, yeah, I think that is, that's a good place for him. So now he gets the chance to pick up a few more points. So first of all, tenure of office, the time that he served as a cabinet member in a full-time capacity. So he served from January 27, 1796 to June 2nd, 1800. So rounding this, he will get four points in this round. And so we have a couple of bonus points for our cabinet members. They can earn a bonus point if they served in more than one cabinet post. Uh, McHenry does not get this. He only served as Secretary of War. But he does get a point because he served in more than one administration. So even though it was just barely a little over a year, he did serve in the Washington administration then carried on to the Adams administration. So one more point. But McHenry did not even come remotely close to becoming president, so he doesn't earn that bonus point. So we are left with a grand total for James McHenry of 22 points. But now we have to ask ourselves the question, Kyle, given all that I've shared about McHenry's life and career, what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars?
2: You know, I don't uh, profess to have a, a, an in-depth knowledge of, of all the cabinet members during that time, um, but he he doesn't seem to be standing out um, like maybe some of the other people in history. You know, he didn't become president. Um, you know, he kind of, he, he was a shooting star. He, he climbed very, very quickly, but then kind of seemed to, um, you know, some of that energy or, or influence did wane at some point. He seems to be very much in the shadow of Alexander Hamilton. I don't remember him in the musical, (laughs) the Hamilton musical. So that's, you know, that's, that's my judgment there. Um. So I, I would say for me, I would say probably he does not, uh, depending on how big that table is, but um, he doesn't stand out to me as someone who um, will, will you know, whose influence really made that big impactful. I mean, he did sign the constitution, so that is something, but um, a lot of his influence doesn't seem from my view to
1: really live on
2: past his time.
1: And I think that's a fair assessment. And that's that's the thing. You know, McHenry, he did have this meteoric rise. He was present for some of these important points. You know, he was a signer of the Constitution. He did serve as a cabinet member. But really, what, what impact did he have? And especially just the fact that his time in the cabinet, he just kept getting more and more criticism for his actions. And then, you know, he's basically forced out the door and just says, okay, that's it. I'm done. I mean, he, he was just burned by all of this. I think, I don't think that we can, rank him as one of the greats. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't get to that realm. And and you know, we've seen this with some of the other cabinet members that we've discussed during this time. You know, we have Timothy Pickering, we have um, Oliver Walcott. They have an influence, they have an impact, but it's just not enough. It's just it's not what you would think of as a great impact as, as having a profound impact. It really is more, you know, kind of going through the motions, really leaning on Hamilton as kind of this behind the scenes organizer and, um, influence. And so I, I agree with that assessment. I think it's gotta be a no.
2: When I think of what could put him at the table, you know, what, what could have gone differently um, just some small changes uh, that could have gone differently and changed my opinion. I think one of those would have been if he would have stuck by his convictions. You know, if, if it would be one thing if he he was kind of like what you were saying with Jefferson. Like, at least he was consistent with his convictions. He 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 was. Um, I feel like. Again, I'm not giving him a whole lot of credit for that, uh, but at the same time, like he he was convicted and he stayed with it, but and, and I think to his fault as well. But with McHenry, I feel like what could have changed that for me is if he said, you know, I know this is going to cost me. I know that this may not uh, lead to my future uh, rise in politics or or finances or you know. Wealth, whatever it is, but I'm convicted that that these humans have equal value, and I'm going to take some actual steps to live out my values. So I think that's just I, I'm convicted in, in hearing you talk about this for um, the last bit about you know calling out the the history of McHenry. Um, it, it's it's convicting to me. To think, um, you know, I, I will never probably be in a history book or, you know, be talked about on a podcast hundreds of years from now. But in a small way, I think it's very convicting to learn from this. What can I what can I learn from this and how can I take away the idea of sticking with my convictions? And though I, I will be judged um, in some small way by you know my grandchildren, great grandchildren in the time that I am in. Um, and I can't live outside of that time, but I can at least know what convictions I hold right now, given the the time and place and the knowledge and the, the the privilege that I have, I can at least act on those. And I think that tells a lot about a person if they are acting on the convictions they do have versus what convictions they do have. You know, I think that is, again, a, a a factor in just being in the time and place that we are in but whether you act on those convictions that you do have i think goes outside of that time and place in some ways um we have the choice of whether to be courageous and whether to be you know moving forward in a progressive uh, bettering of the world type of manner so Really appreciate this conversation This in, in, in so many more ways than I had even expected to gain from this. So yeah, thank you for sharing all this.
1: Absolutely, and likewise, thank you. And whenever I started going into McHenry and we had talked about you coming on, the special series. I was like, this is perfect. This is Kyle is the person that I want to be having this conversation with because it really does get to, you know, and and we see in McHenry's life that he has this potential. He has this, he has times that he does stand by his convictions in ways that so many other cabinet members, you know, to be able to think, okay, well, there's going to be a conflict of interest. I need to go ahead, even though I'm taking a, a financial loss, I need to go ahead and get myself out of this business we have other times that people are not so ethical. So we see that there's that potential, but then there's also, and and to your point, Kyle, you know, one of the things that I stress on the podcast and, and when I have conversations like this is that to your point, we will be judged as well for what's going on in our time for what we did or didn't do. And so I think that's important to study figures like McHenry, who operates and lives in that that gray space that didn't necessarily, he wasn't an awful person, but he also has some ethical issues that we discussed. And so I, I thought that you would be a great partner for this. So thank you so much, Kyle, for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. This was great. Please, everybody, listen to Just Cincinnati. Like I said, links will be shared on my social media around the release of this episode. It'll also be on the website. So please check it out. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.